This podcast is brought to you by the new Blessings of the Faith series from PNR Publishing, available September 22nd. Visit prpbooks.com and hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Here, as always, with my uh, good friend, uh, Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I want to start today, Todd, by mentioning a very distressing uh, tweet that was sent to me uh, just the other day. Uh, <laughs> my friend, Donald McLeod, <laughs> referred the Scottish, to me. The Scottish theologian. The Scottish uh-huh. theologian referred uh-huh. to me as an American theologian <laughs> in the Stornoway Gazette. <laughs> Donald, I don't know if you listen to this program, man, but I'm coming for you. That's that is uh, that was below the belt. You, I, you could have you could have confused me with Todd Pruitt, and I wouldn't be more offended <laughs> at this point. I took great pleasure when I saw that. I thought. This is it. This is how Carl knows he's arrived. Carl can officially now, I mean, being referred to by one of the deans of Scottish systematic theologians of our generation, being a referred of mine to who by knows him. I'm English. Well, you know, I mean, apparently there's a problem in this friendship, though, for him to call you American. This, right? this ex friend, I should have said my, my former friend, Donald <laughs> McLeod. I mean, those of us here who are Americans, we look at that and say, well, of course, who would not want to be identified as an American? But well, for you, that that's that seems to present a bit of a problem. I was going to say, given the paucity of decent theologians that America produced, <laughs> I can understand why why you would want to co-opt me. Uh, but, uh, yeah. I always laugh at Robert Jensen's book uh, on Jonathan Edwards, America's Theologian. I was say, no, Jonathan Edwards thought himself as British. Actually, that's Pat. right. Um, he's pre- this is pre illegal uh, rebellion. This pre- is pre rebellion. <laughs> this is this yeah. is pre liberation. <laughs> <laughs> what was the tax rate you people were objecting to at that point? Oh, it time? was like you know one percent or eighth of a percent or something. You know something outrageous, <laughs> and it wasn't. We weren't even taxed on everything. I mean, that's how oh. that's how far we've slid as a yeah. nation to yeah. allow ourselves to be so abused now. Uh, when well, it, when at the not, time we we you, knew that high taxation was just a few you know a few pennies on on a pound of tea, I, and what gets me is I don't have a vote, and I still have to pay taxation. Wasn't there a phrase "no taxation without <laughs> representation" that was kind of important? Well, but but you are represented. You know, you are you are held within the warm embrace of America's freedoms, and uh, and you enjoy the freedoms and prosperity of here. Being one of our adopted children, even though you have not yet become a citizen, we we treat you as 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 one of our yeah, own, and yeah, it's just and because we like English accents. That's true. That's true. By the way, I have to be careful. I discovered recently. She may be listening today. That the wife of the provost at Grove City College mm-hmm. listens occasionally to the podcast. So Excellent. I need to, Amy, if you're listening, I do love America. Uh, <laughs> and <let> t- <laughs> and she might want to communicate to her husband. 
that Carl can now be promoted as an American theologian. So <laughs> I think Grove City needs to make some hay on that. So that's just my thought. From now on, anyway. that's how I'm referring to you. Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, an American theologian. American theologian. I yes. like it. American nightmare. It's, uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> you can start well, preaching Ameri sermons by Americans now. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to Mortification. <laughs> no, actually, our serious topic for today is, uh, I think is one we may have touched on before, but it's, it's hit the headlines again recently, and that is plagiarism in sermons. Uh, anybody following recent events in the Southern Baptist Convention will know that the newly appointed uh, president of the convention, uh, Pastor Ed Litton, has been engulfed in in a, uh, a plagiarism scandal that, you know, to put it politely, has made him a laughing stock. Mm -hmm. I think there've been a series of videos that have come out online where uh, his sermons have been interspliced with the sermons of among. Uh, I think the pro most prominent one is the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, where repeated sections of sermons have been taken virtually word for word from the sermons of Greer. And it raises an interesting question because Todd and I were talking before the program and, and both of us agreed that neither, and this will come as no surprise to our listeners or anybody who's ever heard us preach that neither of us has ever actually had an original thought in a sermon whatsoever. All of our sermons are profoundly dependent upon the wisdom of others. But there is a difference between building your sermon on the wisdom of others, using commentaries, listening to other people's sermons, seeing how they've handled the text, getting insights into what the biblical authors meant or, or what applications might be useful to draw from a particular passage. There's a difference between what I would regard as competent and appropriate sermon preparation to make sure that what you present to your people is worth hearing and straightforward, to use the English vernacular, knocking off somebody else's mm -hmm. sermon to save you some prep time during the week. Uh, Todd, uh, I, I know that you're renowned as one of the least original preachers in the United States. Um, <laughs> I just, I get all my material from the great American theologian, uh, Carl Truman. So yeah, that's yeah, where yeah, I, I mean, go. You are to me as Millie Vanilli were to whoever they were knocking off. I can't remember. So Todd Pruitt, the Millie Vanilli of the American yeah. pulpit. Oh. By the way, for any of our listeners under the age of 50, you probably need to Google Millie Vanilli mm -hmm. to get the, uh, the the cultural reference there. That's right. That's right. Todd, take us well, through why plagiarizing sermons is so egregious. Well, you know, this thing with um, the recently elected president of the Southern Raps Convention is really i mean it's embarrassing I, I i he ought to be deeply humiliated i i'm i'm sure he is humiliated i'm sure he is embarrassed although he's not stepping down and and as you mentioned this was not uh some unattributed quote in one sermon Th these are entire sermons entire sermon series that were just lifted from uh, a, another preacher and and that's as you suggested that's entirely different from the normal work of sermon preparation, where we are hopefully researching um, numerous commentaries, both newer and older, seeking to find the best um, wisdom 
uh, from past generations of, of Bible interpreters and preachers as we, because one of the things a preacher does not want to do, at least a good preacher doesn't want to do, a faithful preacher doesn't want to come up with an entirely original interpretation of a scripture passage. No, those you, are if, usually bad. Those are usually <laughs> nobody's bad nobody's thought of sermons. it before, there's a reason why nobody's e- thought of it before. Exactly. And one of the reasons why good preachers do consult numerous commentaries is to, to make sure that we're not uh, being um, sinfully um, innovative, um, that, that we're not inventing new doctrines or taking the scripture far afield from what the church has historically affirmed. But that's not plagiarizing. That's making sure that we are continuing to pass along the faith that was once delivered. Um, what we're seeing with, for instance, Pastor Lytton and, and others uh, who have done this is straight up sermon stealing. And what what it would seem like is that the justification for it seems to be um, time constraints. In fact, there was uh, some years ago before the fall of of Mars Hill, when Mars Hill was go- still going strong, um, they would promote uh, this research site, sermon research site called the, the, the Docent Group. And pastors could, uh, I guess, pay. For, well, yeah, I know they, they could pay for a service. And some young, hungry MDiv students would do their sermon prep for them, would do all the research, do all the biblical, historical language um, research for them. And they would pay for that service. From big names as well. Absolutely. Very big names back the docent group, um, well-known names among Baptists and, and conservative Presbyterians. And in my opinion, all that was, again, was stealing other people's work. Now, again, Good sermon prep is leaning on other people's work and that we're going to good commentaries and good studies that have already been written. But the pastor needs to be doing that. I, I began thinking just the other day of the irony of a pastor saying, well, I, I preach so-and-so's sermon series because I'm so busy with my work as a pastor that I don't have time to do yeah. proper sermon prep- preparation. Now, that, that, that's that's an outrageous thing to say. In fact, I know Mark Driscoll and others used to promote docent on that very basis of, man, the work of the pastor is demanding. It keeps you very busy. You just don't have time to do all this research. Well, let docent do it for you. That is like saying to a surgeon, you don't have time to do surgery. Let someone else do it for you. The, The ministry of the word, preaching and teaching of the word, which necessitates the preparation, um, is central to the pastor's call. Yeah. It's yeah. central to the pastor's call. It, it's, it's not <clears throat> subsidiary to it. It is central to it so that you don't understand a pastor does not understand his calling. If he is not reserving sufficient time uh, for the sermon preparation, because he knows that among the most important things he does all week, sermon preparation so that he can properly feed the people of God, is that top priority. He's got yeah. several high priorities, but feeding the flock. And I, you know, I go back to Jesus's you know, reinstitution, if you like, of, of, of Peter, you know, do you love me? Feed my sheep that ought to resound in the ears and in the conscience of every pastor. Do you love Jesus pastor? Then feed his sheep. And, and in my opinion, we're not doing that well when we're stealing other men's sermons. Yeah. And again, we're not looking for guys to come up with something that no preacher in the past has ever come up with. Beware that preacher. But a pastor, there, there is something sanctifying about the work of sermon preparation. 
um, it, it is a sanctifying um, habit yeah. to be in. Plus, one of the things, at least this is my experience and the experience of other faithful pastors I know, when you're doing sermon prep, it's a prayerful process where even as you're doing language work, as you're doing historical setting work, all of those kinds of things, you're thinking about the people that you're going to be preaching to that week. Yeah. You're existentially engaging with the material. Yes precisely because it's you working through it. Exactly. Um, a little bit of historical perspective, of course, this. I mean, first of all, the centrality of the word is basic to Protestantism. And, and interestingly enough, in the English Reformation, uh, you have these books of homilies. The, the Anglican Church produces two books of homilies mm -hmm. uh, under Edward VI and then under Queen Elizabeth. And these were like short sermons. And, and right. the reason they produced them was that the you know, with the clergy, when Reformation comes to town, it's not that all the clergy get cleared out and suddenly we've got all these highly trained Protestants that can fill right. the pulpit. No, the local Catholic priest becomes, hey, presto, an Anglican Protestant <laughs> overnight. Right. But you've got to, he's got to have something to give the people. So they yeah. produce these books of homilies. Well, somebody might say, ah, yeah, well, that's plagiarism. We'll say, well, no, because nobody thought the priest had actually come up with that sermon himself. Exactly. They, they were a stopgap measure for right. emergency situations where the priest wasn't competent. Yeah. These were the church's homilies. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Secondly, of course, we, we've had shifts in, in the concept of intellectual property. Part of my PhD was I looked at how William Tyndale you know, ripped bits out of Luther, <laughs> stuck him in treatise. He wrote no acknowledgement whatsoever. That was not a problem in the 16th century because they didn't have the same concept of copyright and intellectual property that we now have. It really emerges in the 19th century, I think. So you might say, well, okay, so ministers shouldn't be held to, to historically conditioned criteria relative to intellectual property. Well, no, they should. Yeah. Because ministers are to be above reproach and they're to be of good reputation with those outside, mm -hmm. aside from anything that may be in their employment contract in terms of their being paid to prepare sermons. Right. And I think uh, if you you know, if you're knocking off somebody else's sermons and presenting it as your as own, your own. Mm -hmm. that's dishonest. Right. If if you're using an anecdote or you're citing somebody word for word, then you've got to acknowledge that in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Maybe you haven't got to use the name. I mean, I, I remember in some sermons which I've preached, uh, I might have used a Roman Catholic source. Right. And in order not to kind of disturb, confuse the congregation, whatever, I won't say, you know, Henri de Lubac says this. Right. I'll say, one commentator on this passage exactly. says this, and, and but at least I'm acknowledging there that I've taken it from, right. from somewhere else. Yeah. This is outrageous. It, it is. speaks of, well, it speaks of matters of honesty. It speaks to matters of laziness. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it also speaks to matters, uh, I would say here, of stupidity. You know, <laughs> if you're going to plagiarize a sermon, why <clears throat> plagiarize a sermon from somebody who's online and high profile? Exactly. Uh, you yeah. know, it's... Yeah, if, if you're going to plagiarize, and, and I'm not recommending that, by the way, <laughs> but if you are dishonest, but not stupid, yeah. and you steal from a source where it's not going to be easy yeah, to trace. Exactly. Don't steal from Tim Keller or David Platt or J.D. Greer um, or Mark Driscoll. Don't don't steal from those guys. Steal, yeah. steal, steal from, from me. Steal from me or Todd, you know, <laughs> people that nobody listens to. <laughs> um, you know, in, in terms of quoting people, I, I, I do something similar. You know, there are times when I, I quote from a, a scholar that I don't necessarily want anybody other than pastors, you know, going and access just because I don't Rudolph recommend Bultmann, for example, yeah, you know, um, and, and so I'll say, 
you know, one commentator puts it this way. Um, however, in my, in my sermon manuscript, and I, I go to the pulpit with a, with a, a manuscript, um, I, I, I footnote all those things and I, and I, and I footnote not, not only quotes, but in my sermon manuscript, I'll, I'll footnote something that I, I draw heavily enough on from a commentator that I'm, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have come up with on my own, mm-hmm. but I owe a lot of that. And, and I yeah. will footnote that in my sermon manuscript, I'll footnote it in the sermon notes that I, that I give to my congregation every week. Um, I produ- uh, produce a front and back sermon guide where it's basically a, a, a full page summary of the sermon with points. And on any given Sunday, I'll have anywhere between one to six footnotes on that. Yeah. Just, I mean, it keeps me honest. Um, yeah. It just always seems like the right thing to do, you know, and, and again, we, as, as, Preachers, I think one of the things that, that is comforting about it is, is I'm saying to my people, I, I haven't been innovative with the text in terms of coming up with something that is, that is unheard of before me. I'm, every week, I'm engaging with past generations of the church to make sure not every commentator agrees on everything, but, but you know what I mean. We, we look back. I mean, I, I have the whole um, uh, ancient commentary series, that excellent commentary series several years ago that, that IVP completed. You know, I consult those. I consult the Reformation commentary series. I want to know what past generation, every good preacher ought to want to know what past generations have been saying because these men are still tutoring us in, yeah, in that yeah. way. But, but to attribute these things, and I don't understand, to me, um, just as a matter of conscience, and I, I'm as sinful as the next guy, but just as a matter of conscience, getting up and ripping out somebody else's story, somebody else's work uh, just is sketchy. I would have a very hard time living well, with myself. We, we've seen numerous instances of plagiarism, both in uh, written works and in sermons. I mean, the most ridiculous thing, I, I remember one person uh, being being told that he'd engaged in unintentional plagiarism. Yes. There's no such thing. The yes. academic world does not recognize unintentional plagiarism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I do think there is a serious integrity issue here. But uh, on a practical level, when I prepare, and I don't prepare sermons uh, anymore with the frequency that you have to, Todd, but my practice was always typically to, to try to get the basic structure of the sermon before I even consulted commentaries. Uh, I love preaching on the Old Testament, and I actually found that if I read Dale Ralph Davis, yes, uh, his small commentaries on the Old Testament, yes. if I read them before I prepare a passage, uh-huh. it's very hard not to just preach what Ray- Dale Ralph Davis has written. Because he's he's already written yeah. a better sermon than I <laughs> than Yeah, than so I always try to, yeah. to do a fair amount of prep before I go to the commentaries, simply the, so that the commentaries then effectively function right. at fleshing out something or correcting something that I've already put exactly. out there. And I can't engage in that mythical thing, unintentional right. plagiarism. Right. Uh, it's funny how uh, colleges and seminaries never, ever talk about unintentional plagiarism when it's students. They're dealing, oh, exactly. You know, you, oh, yeah. if you're a student, you're out. Exactly. There's, exactly. There's no appeal for that. But anyway, yeah. that's a personal yeah. beef yeah. I have. Yeah. But I think there are ways of, of doing that. I mean, I remember asking Scott McKnight, the New Testament scholar, some years ago when a lot of the New Testament guys were being caught plagiarizing mm-hmm. in commentaries, you know, what do you think about this? And he made, a, I thought, a very helpful comment to me. He said, um, 
if you, you know, there are only a, a limited number of ways you can say the verb is, is the aorist. So right. when you're dealing with a limited canon, like preachers are, yes. there is going to be a huge amount of common ground that anybody yes. dealing with that passage is going to be addressing. But then he went on to say, you know, if, if you're borrowing an idea from somebody or you're borrowing verbatim from people on, on something above the mere, the verb is in the air, as right. he said, then you need to footnote it. You need mm. to acknowledge it. And I think preachers need to be very careful when they do that to, to use those little form. You know, it's not an academic exercise, so it's not a chapter and verse thing, but the idea of a commentator says, right. or even, you know, if, if it's, if somebody you want your people to read, Dale Ralph Davis has Absolutely. this brilliant point yep. on, uh, on matter X. Yep. I think that's yeah, and, very important. And those very examples, I mean, I'm happy to uh, to tell my congregation, Alec Mateer wrote yep. this, Dale Ralph Davis wrote this. Um, yep. The great uh, American those, theologian, Carl Truman. Carl Truman this. wrote this. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. My, 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 my preparation <laughs> tends to I tend to approach it the same way as you do in, in terms of my first steps. I, I, I start on Monday morning and I just, without any distractions, I sit down at a local coffee shop, find a corner, open up the Bible and begin to just read through it, read through it, read through it and start to kind of map out the contours of the text, mm. seeing um, a best way to sort of structure it in terms of, of public communication, kind of outline it. Um, write down what seems to be the central idea, write down, um, you know, a few of those insights and always by that time, also a few illustrations are start, starting to pop mm -hmm. in my mind. But once I get that, then I go back and I start to read the, the more technical commentaries on historical background yeah. language stuff. And it's only after that, where I will consult then guys like Dale Roth Davis and Alec material who both do historical work. I mean, they're both yeah. scholars, but I consult them. Um, later be precisely because they're so good. Yeah. They are so good that if I consulted them first, I'd end up preaching their sermon. Yeah, I'm afraid yeah. for the, so, so the same reason you did, I consult them later on because they help fill in the gaps and give me better language or really, really good language or insights. And, and, and in the process, if it's something I am using from them, I always cite them, always yeah, cite them yeah. both in the, in the sermon sheet that I, that I give, to, to the congregation and in my manuscript itself. Um, and you can do that. That's perfectly acceptable to do that. But if I get up and if I open Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on first Samuel or whatever, and just copy him and preach his sermon, I, I suppose there's a way I could stand up before my congregation and say, look, I read Dale Ralph Davis's sermon. It's so good. I'm just going to preach his sermon. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you, you can do that. Now your church can decide whether or not they want to pay you for that, but yeah. you know, I mean, I can see in, a, in an exceptional situation, let's, let's say there's been a series of pastoral disasters in a week, yeah, yeah. and a pastor has simply not had time. Yeah. And it does sit happen. Down, uh, sit down and, and do decent preparation. Yeah. Uh, if you can't get somebody in to fill the pulpit for him on a Sunday, I could, it never happened to me, yeah. but I could hypothetically imagine a situation where you stand up in a pulpit and say, look, I had 20 minutes to prepare a sermon this week. I've really had to use Dale Ralph Davis. And what I'm giving you today is essentially my, you know, my ad lib on Dale Ralph Davis's points. I could see that happening maybe once or twice in a sermonic career. And it would not be sinful or wrong to do that yeah, because yeah. people need something, you know, they need the minister. Right. Bottom line is they need something decent from the pulpit on a Sunday. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the problem, of course, with Ed Lytton is it's 
it seems to have been a way of life. Entire series, yeah. entire s- sermon series were, yeah. were, were copied and, and, and without preached. Without attribution. Without attribution. Say, in that remarkable circumstance that I've described, I think most of us, I mean, I was in a situation once where something happened. I actually said to my elders, I just haven't had time to prepare. Yeah. I, actually, I think it may have been that somebody was preaching in the evening and, and they were caught ill and suddenly at the last ah. minute. And, yeah. and I said, I've got a, I got to preach a sermon I preached before. Is that okay? And I okayed it yeah. with my elders. Yeah. Um, I could see in that situation somebody saying, you know, an elder saying, "Man, we haven't got a preacher. Maybe we need to read one of Spurgeon's sermons." <laughs> to, it would be unfortunate, and it would not be for the regular diet of the no. church. But but in, the, but but in that extraordinary instance, right? Yeah. It, it and that's be not wrong. plagiarism. No, it's not. That no, that not. I think is is prudential pastoring in an extreme circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there may be where where a pastor has a moment where where they are you know in a very rare circumstance particularly pressed and not, not everybody can do this but there are guys out there that have a gift for extemporaneous preaching yeah, where they can yeah. they're familiar enough with a particular passage of scripture where they can get up and read it and just begin to expound it I mean uh, Charles Spurgeon could do that yeah um, there, there are guys who can who, who can do that now. That can be a dangerous thing um, if it's yeah, done just read some regularly. Of <laughs> yeah. Great sermon. Not quite sure how it connected to the text. Sure, but, uh, exactly. And that's the thing, you know. If, if yeah. you have a real gift for extemporaneous speech, you know, it, it, I'm sure it could be a uh, uh, an excuse to cut corners, you know, in in kind of careful uh, preparation. I mean, I know guy, I know of guys who would do their sermon prep just late Saturday night because they could just jot down some notes in about an hour and be done. Hmm. Um, I, I think that there are times where a good sermon can be preached that way, Yeah, but I would, I, I, I wouldn't want that to be my, my pattern. And I say all that to say, listen, if, if, if you're a pastor or if you have a pastor, um, th- one of the central privileges to the pastoral calling is not just preaching, but preparing to preach. That's a privilege. It's a part of how God, hmm. Uh, sanctifies his ministers. Um, all of that time we spend in the word is to be a, a sanctifying process. It's to be a prayerful process. It is essential to the ministry of our people because any good pastor is thinking about his people, praying for his people as he prepares the sermon. You know, I, I mean, how many times when you're when you're doing sermon preparation, you think about that couple whose marriage is in trouble, or that person who just got diagnosed with cancer, or or the, the the young woman who just found out she's she has an ectopic pregnancy or something like that. Those things are going into your work of sermon preparation. They are on your mind yeah. as you're as you're dealing with a text and thinking about how best to illustrate it, how best to apply it, and you know that takes time to do it. I, I don't know, kind of on a good week, Carl, how many hours? I mean, for me. Um, when I, when I was younger, easily 24 hours a week in sermon prep, it does not take that long anymore. And I don't yeah. think for a seasoned pastor, it should take 24 yeah. hours. I'm more at like maybe 11 or 12. Yeah. When I was pastoring because it was part time and I got a yeah. full-time job, I, I couldn't get the kind of, okay, I'm going to sit down and do three hours. Right. So right. my sermon prep was actually a little odd in that I would tend to read the Bible passage early in the week and then read the commentaries throughout the week when I had time and be thinking about the passage when I was driving places. And then on Saturday afternoon, I would put it all together. But I would spend a lot of time thinking and praying through the passage just during the week in in the moments that I could grab. But that was not ideal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful being 
you know, I get paid to talk for a living. I'm a teacher, yeah. I'm a lecturer. So yeah. the delivery, worried about delivery was not something that I, I ever wrestled with. It, for me, it was meditating on the passage and reading the commentaries. And again, that, that's, that's the task of the bivocational pastor. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. uh, he has to be able to manage that well. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you are, um, if you're a pastor and you don't have time for sermon prep, then really, really evaluate your call or evaluate your health. Um, your, you know, your, your spiritual health, if you're so caught up um, in, in doing other things that are demanding your time that you find yourself having to lift other people's sermons, or if, or if you're so dry, if nothing's coming to you when you sit before the text, um, go to your elders, go to somebody because there's a problem that needs to be uh, addressed. Um, one of the central joys of the pastoral ministry is also one of its central callings, and that is to prepare to feed and then to actually feed God's people. And if you're a pastor, um, you need to receive that um, as a joy and practice it joyfully for the blessing of your people and out of love for Christ. Well, if you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, we have uh, a giveaway for you for some of our uh, fortunate listeners. Uh, We'll be giving away copies of Preaching and Preachers by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It is a classic. Um, I still refer to it every once in a while. I'll read portions of certain chapters that challenge me and help me think through certain things. And uh, we'd love to give away a few copies to some of our listeners. So you can go to our website and and enter to win a copy of Preaching and Preachers by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Also, while you're there, we are a listener-supported podcast. And if you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you may do so. And that would certainly be appreciated. Until next time, thanks for joining us here on Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. September 22nd, discover the exciting new Blessings of the Faith series from PNR Publishing. Featuring Jason Halopoulos on covenantal baptism, David Strain on expository preaching, and Guy Richard on persistent prayer. Three of the most trusted and distinguished voices of the faith answer your questions about these important Reformed church practices in a way that every layperson will understand. 
The new Blessings of the Faith series will be available September 22nd from PNR Publishing, bringing you books that promote biblical understanding and godly living, as summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. Visit prpbooks.com to learn more. prpbooks.com